Well, we'd better get started here. We're in chapter 32 in our study of the patriarchs. This is the, uh, I think we could say, the culmination of God's transformation of Jacob. This is a, uh, this is probably one of the most important chapters in the patriarchs because when the Jewish people would read this chapter, they would understand where their name comes from, why they are called the children of Israel. Uh, they're not called, you know, children of Abraham or children of Isaac, or they're called the children of, 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 of Israel, because this is where God changes Jacob's name. But the context is something that is very important as well. Now, I, I won't um, go through all this again, but you remember in the chapters that we dealt with yesterday, or excuse me, last Wednesday, those two chapters, <clears throat> Jacob has left his uncle Laban and taken his clan, four wives, uh, 11 sons, a daughter, and all of his herds. He is a very wealthy man, as the ancient Near Eastern world would measure wealth. And he is doing what God wants him to do, which is go back to the promised land. God had commanded him to do that, and, and we covered all that last week. So he is just at the edge of the promised land. If you are interested and, and follow this in, Page 23 of the maps, uh, of that note packet that I gave you is map, and I'm particularly interested in the, uh, the larger of the two maps, because that one illustrates these communities that we're going to see, Mahanaim, Sukkot, Penuel, they're all on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, there is a river that flows from the mountains of Jordan and goes right into the Jordan River. It's called the Jabbok River. Uh, I've been there many times. Um, it's only after the winter, in other words, only in the spring months, is the water in it. The rest of the time during the year, it dried up. But so this tells us when Jacob is here. He's going to be in this, this river. So he's come down from way up north, approximately 480 miles. He's come down on the east side of the Jordan River, and he's going to head across into the promised land. But he knows a fact that's awaiting him. That fact is, Esau's on the other side of the Jordan River. The brother that he betrayed, the brother that he deceived, the brother that he robbed, I mean, all those things are going through his mind. So if we look at verse 1 of chapter uh, 32, Jacob went on his way after he left Laban and all the things that we studied last week. And the angels of God met him, which is, is really an interesting statement or interesting comment, God now sends two of his angels, remember the word angel means messenger, two of his messengers, two of his angels to meet Jacob. Now, just a, a curious thought here. Why, why would God do this? Because this is similar to chapter 28, verse 12, where Jacob is now headed up north to go to his uncle, and at Bethel, two angels appear to him. So God, again, there's a number of things going on here, but God, again, is reminding him, that is Jacob, that God is with him. And these two messengers are a reminder of that. So Jacob saw them and said, this is God's camp. And he calls the name Mahanaim. And on that map, you can see where Mahanaim is. And that is just that's Hebrew. That means two camps, <laughs> God's camp and my camp. God's camp, two angels, God's here, God's with me, and my camp, 
where all my kids, my wife, all my flocks, etc. And so that's important. Jacob is reminding him, excuse me, Jacob is being reminded by God that God is with him. And the two angels, the messenger of God, are confirming that. And Jacob recognizes that. And this is a typical thing that you see in, in the Old Testament. God meets, God deals with somebody, and they name the place. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what's happened here. Now, verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir. Now, the land of Seir is another name for Edom. So uh, wherever you're going to see that a couple of times in this in this section of Genesis, S E I R Ser is another name for Edom. And remember uh, again, if you're looking on the map, map that's way south, and you can see it on this map. That is the land that Esau settled. Esau means red. Edom means red. And so he he sends him down to talk to Esau the country of Edom, instructing them. Now, I want you to notice the language that Jacob tells his servants to use. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. What did God say to Rebekah when she was pregnant with the two boys? The older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. The older will be the servant of the younger. What is Jacob saying? My Lord, my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. So Jacob is using, and his messengers are going to say it this way, but Jacob is using the language of the covenantal arrangement and reversing it. Do you understand? Do you understand? You follow me? This is very intentional. You can be extremely cynical here that Jacob again is trying to manipulate. He's trying to control. He's trying to gain the favor of Esau by using this language. My Lord Esau, this is your servant Jacob calling. <laughs> he dialed him up on his speed dial and his phone. You know. <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, it's just, this is really instructive. This isn't accidental. This is what is very intentional on Jacob's part, what he's doing. And it goes on. This is what the servants are going to say to Esau. I have sojourned with Laban and say that until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. I've sent my servants to tell you all this. My Lord, second time he uses that word. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. There are 400 men with him. Now, all you have to do is put yourself in Jacob's place. And for the messengers you sent, we're buttering Esau up and saying all these deferential things to him. And they come back days later and say, we saw Esau, 400 men are with him. A welcoming party? They're going to have a big party, you know, and all the things that will be just welcoming him as he crosses the Jordan into the promised land. I don't, I don't think so. 
And so the very next verse, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. That's natural. That's understandable. And so it's, it's again, just think about it from the context of what we know about Jacob. I do think he's intentionally using these words, my Lord, my Lord, servant, Jacob, all that, to, again, try to manipulate, butter him up, and he gets the word. He's coming with 400 men. There is just, no matter how he processes it, he's going to kill me. He promised he would kill me. When I was running north to get out of his sight, he said, I'm going to kill you. So that's, there's no other way he could think about that. Now, as you'll find out as we get to the next chapter, that's not true. It's one of the most remarkable reconciliations in the Bible, chapter 34, or chapter 30, but we're not there yet, chapter 33. So he divided, I'm in verse 7, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So that's reasonable, that's good planning. And then his prayer. He's afraid. He does a reasonable thing in dividing his family and his wealth. And then he prays. Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, oh Lord, Yahweh. He addresses him as Yahweh. That is that is a very significant statement. That's the first time this is used by Jacob. So he is saying something in addressing God in this way. Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father, that's a normal thing. It's all over the place. Oh, Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. That's what God had said to him earlier. He was up at him around. He was a man God. So it's just it's very significant his deferential spirit to the Lord. And he calls him Yahweh. I am not worthy, verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Stop there. You see those two key words, steadfast love. Now here is a test of your memory. Here's a test of whether I have taught you something. Here's a test of whether you remember what I taught you. Steadfast love. What's the Hebrew word? Oh. Hesed. Somebody said it. Hesed. Yes, thank you. You have redeemed the class. <laughs> this is a substitutionary redemption because everyone in this room failed me, but you. <laughs> thank you, Russ. It's Hesed. Now, honestly, I know I, I was I was kidding. I, I, I wasn't expecting you to know it, but now you do know it. You won't forget it. <laughs> Chesed. In, 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 uh, in English, you would spell H-E-S-E-D. Sometimes it's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, but it's guttural, chesed. But it's, it's one of the most important words in the, New, in the Old Testament. I mean, it is really, really an important word. It's just over and over and over and over again. Spell it again, what do you do? Uh, H-E-S-E-D, chesed, or sometimes you'll spe say it's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, but it, it's just an, huh? Loyal covenant love. 
And that's, uh, the, you, you see this in, in the patriarchs. They are constantly appealing to God's chesed, but you see it also in the prophets, both the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, so on, and a lot of the minor prophets. They use this over and over again, because that is the term. If there's one term that summarizes God's commitment to the people of Israel, it's chesed. It's that loyal covenant love that, that he has shown to them. And of course, that's the Abrahamic covenant starts that and all the other things. But anyway, and then faithfulness. So Jacob, and this is quite wonderful, actually, Jacob is recognizing God's grace in his life. Everything he's done, he doesn't deserve any of this, but that's the point we've been studying. He's a trophy of God's grace, and he recognizes that. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown your servants. Everything he's done, I'm not worthy of any of this. That's a very important thing for him to say. For with my staff only, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Remember, he divided the camps. Remember that? Please, this, this word, really, really remember this. Please deliver me. When we get to 32, chapter 32, verse 30, he is going to use that word again in verse 30. My life has been delivered exactly the same way. So God will answer his prayer because of what happens in this wrestling match and so on. And that's how God's going to answer his prayer. And so his prayer is, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. So, I mean, obviously, verse 11, is, it's, it's a reasonable prayer, it's a logical prayer, it's a meaningful prayer, it's an important prayer. He does not know what is awaiting him, but he knows this fact. Esau is coming with 400 men. So his prayer is, and, and deliver, it's not salvation, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with spiritual, it's, it's delivering, save my life, and the life of my wives, and my life of my kids. Because I don't know what Esau's going to do. But you said, verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so that's interesting. He had his prayer, deliver me. But then verse 12, that prayer is based on a covenant promise. You promised something to me, God. What did God promise him? Your offspring is the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. So what in effect is he saying? I know you're not going to kill me. I know you're not going to allow me to be killed because you made a promise to me. And if Jacob's killed, then there's not going to be any offspring. You know what he said? He's, God, you promised all this to me. So... My kids are here and all that, but if Esau kills everybody, this promise you made is meaningless. And I don't you make meaningless promises. But Jim? Tying. So he's tying the promise God had made with his prayer for deliverance. Uh, yes. Uh, Glenn, well, it, it may be he would have let his kids live, but he was going to kill Jacob. Well, that's, that's true. But he says he's afraid of him attacking his mothers with all the children and so on. I mean, he's rolling all of that into the fact. If he, right. if he wipes everybody out, you can't keep your promise. And you made your promise. 
Yeah, but his and people so, was with Jacob. wasn't with his wasn't with his wives and children, though. But well, that that's true, Glenn. But does Jacob know that Esau is not going to wipe everybody out? He has no idea. That's right. He has no idea because if he wipes everybody out, then Esau can claim to be the covenant promised firstborn. Right. So out of his ignorance, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And he's imagining the worst case scenario that he's going to kill everybody and claim the covenant promise. But Jacob says, you made that promise to me, God. And he repeats it. It's what we just covered in verse 12. How old is Jacob? He's in his 60s. So from your vantage point, he's a really young guy. From my vantage point, he's a really young guy. I'm the oldest guy in this room. All right, now. All right, is is everybody with with me and, and with the, the, the prayer that Jacob just uttered. This, this, this is one of the things I really like in Old Testament prayers. You see this uh, quite extensively illustrated in the Psalms. They, they'll utter a prayer to God, and they'll connect that prayer with a promise God made. You promised me this, God. And that's not self-centered praying. That's realistic praying. You made a promise to me. And I'm appealing to you in this prayer request based on that promise you made to me. And for you and me, there's nothing wrong with praying that. God, you promised, I mean, he's made lots of, you know, dozens and dozens of promises God has made to us. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you until the end of the age, the thing Jesus said. Is it all right to go to God and say, hey, you said this to me, Jesus. I'm in a really difficult position. You said you'll never leave me or forsake me. Remember that promise? Here's the situation I'm in, Lord. And so this is what Jacob is doing. He's the bedrock of his prayer is a promise God made to him. And so it's not a wish or just a you know, kind of a sounding, spiritually sounding prayer that doesn't have its meaning. This is anchored in a promise. Deliver me, Lord, please, because I'm afraid of my brother. And you made a promise to me. You didn't make it to, to Esau. You made it to me. So God, your promise is on the line. And that and that's not selfish praying. That's realistic praying based on a promise. And we can make that appeal. Okay? Now, isn't this true? I mean, we, we know something to be true, but we want further assurances by reminding ourselves of what we are promised. That's right. It may not be the same promise, but there's a lot well, of Well, no, and there's loads there's of promise. That's right. That's right. And again, the, the psalmists do this, you know, there are 150 psalms, but many, many of the psalms, this is what you see. The psalmist cries out to God and then, remember, Lord, that's often the word that's used, remember, Lord, and there's some promise that you, or remember, God, you have been faithful to me in the past. I'm asking you to be faithful to me now. And so it's just, this, that's, it's just, this is good praying. This isn't manipulative praying. This is sound praying. It's a calling on a promise. All right. So now what happened? Verse 13. So he stayed, he would be Jacob, stayed there that night. And when, and from, from what he had 
with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. He handed them over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servant, pass on ahead of me, put a space between drove and drove, you know, the different groups of these animals, drove and drove. He instructed the first, when he saw my brother meet you and ask you, to whom do they belong? Do you belong? Where are you going? And wh whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to your, here's this language again, your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he's behind us. And he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the drove. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob. Notice two times he identifies himself as servant. Or he thought that he would be Jacob. He thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 550 animals organized in droves, quite a bit ahead of Jacob, as an appeasement, as an appeasing gift to appease what Jacob assumes to appease his anger, Esau's anger. You could be really cynical and say he wants to buy off Jacob. This is not this is not an irrational thing for Jacob to do. This is a reasonable thing for Jacob to do from this vantage point. I'm the firstborn. I'm deferring to you as my Lord. And I'm going to share with you some of the wealth of my being the firstborn. You follow me? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is also a part of what he's doing. I have received the covenant blessing of being the firstborn. My wealth is from Uncle Laban and all that we talked about last week and how I got that and everything. And I'm sharing as the firstborn, I'm sharing it with you. I stole the birthright from you, but I'm going to share some of it with you now. So there's a lot of things going on here. Yes, he says he wants to appease his anger. Esau's anger. He wants to make peace with him. He wants to do everything he can for this to be a peaceful reconciliation, but he has no idea how Esau is going to greet him. He's afraid. We've seen that. He prays for deliverance, but he's doing everything he can to share the birthright prosperity that he has experienced as the firstborn, recognized as the firstborn. Remember all, how all that happened. To appease, to, to appease Esau. Will this work? We'll see it in the next chapter. But now something happens to Jacob that's totally unexpected. It catches you and I as the reader off guard. It would have caught, obviously, him off guard. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself, that's Jacob, stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, 
and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Now, as I told you a moment ago, you can see it on that map. Jabbok River is a river that rises in the mountains of Jordan, the mountains to the east of the Jordan River. And in the springtime, that thing is loaded with water. As the snows melt and all the water comes down. So he's there at the time when the water is fairly significant. So they crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them, sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. Jacob was alone. Now, obviously, he sends his kids, his wives, someone who slocks at everything, for safety reasons, protection reasons. I'll stay here. Because Esau is coming up from Edom. Esau is coming up along the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan. I'm going to meet him. I want all of my loved ones and all my wealth and everything on the other side. I'm going to meet him. <clears throat> and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. He is assaulted. The question is, who's this assailant? Who's assaulting him? Well, so far, the text is just telling us at night, when Jacob is alone, there is no one else with him. He's assaulted. Who's the assailant? And it says, according to verse 24, that they wrestle till the break of day. So, you know, we kind of assume and infer from the way in which the language was at the end of the last paragraph to the beginning of this paragraph, that that was at night, let's just pick a time, 10 o'clock. Maybe they go to bed at 9 o'clock. Maybe they're really old and they go to bed at 8 o'clock, like you guys do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, whenever. You gotta, so it's, it's over. It's, we thought you were the oldest one. Yeah, well, I am. <laughs> I, go to bed at five I go to bed at 5 after 8. No, I, I'm just kidding. Um, so it would be then during those early morning hours, you know, midnight or after midnight, or before, he's assaulted, and they wrestle till the sunrise, the breaking of day. So this isn't just a momentary wrestling match. This is significant. Jacob's been assaulted. At this point in the text, we don't know who that is. It's an anonymous, unknown assault assailant, and they're wrestling throughout the morning, early morning hours. Verse twenty-five. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, the man is the assailant, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Jacob has now been injured, just put it that way, but his hip socket has been touched. It's out of joint. One that would be painful, that would be debilitating, and he's going to limp. But he's been, he's been assaulted, and now he's been injured. Then he said that he is this man, this assailant. Let me go, for the day is broken. The sun's coming up. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, by this time in this wrestling match, Jacob is realizing something. What's he realizing? This isn't an ordinary man. 
This is not just some anonymous Canaanite that's attacked me or whatever. There's something supernatural about this. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 32, he had met two angels of God, two messengers of God, and he named it Mahananim, God's camp, my camp. So Jacob is reaching the conclusion here, there's something more to this guy. He's not just a regular human being. And so he is, I want you to bless me. So he's recognizing. This is either another messenger of God or this is God himself. And he insists on a blessing. And he said to him that he would be this man. The assailant said to him, that is Jacob, what is your name? He doesn't know. He doesn't know whom he's wrestling. He doesn't know. What does he want Jacob to say? I'm Yaakov, the heel catcher, the manipulator, the conniver. That's who I am. Then he said, verse 28, your name shall no longer be Yaakov, Jacob, but Israel. First time this is mentioned in the Bible. Israel. Israel means he who wrestles with God. He who contends with God. He who strives with God. That's what Jacob's been doing. Jacob's been doing this all of his life. This isn't just what happened in the previous hours. That is a word that describes his life. He has been fighting with God all his life. He's been striving with God all his life. That is his new covenant name. You've striven with God, with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he, the assailant, says, why is it that you ask my name? The Hebrew here is really quite interesting. I think you could legitimately paraphrase it something like this. Jacob says, please tell me your name. And the assailant responds, think, you know who it is. It's a euphemism. Why is it you ask my name? Think, you know who it is. And the assailant doesn't answer. The sense is it's self-evident who his assailant is. As a matter of fact, we know it's self-evident because in verse 30, what do we read? Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. He knows he has wrestled with the Lord. It's a theophany. You know, remember we used that word before. It's a theophany. But he has wrestled with the Lord. And so what, what is God doing here? This is the final step, at least the final one that's recorded in Scripture. This is the final step of God's transformation of Jacob. He's been out connived by Laban. He's never seen his mother. He will never see his mother again until he gets to heaven. And now 
God has changed his name. God has broken Jacob. Because God has, for, when he says to him, what is your name? And Jacob responds, Yahoo. Jacob, uh, Yahoo. That is not just, not that God doesn't know his name. This is, I want you to come to terms with who you are. And I'm going to give you a new name. Like God changed Abraham, Abram's name to Abraham. And so now he's given him a covenant name. And so when, when Jewish people would read this chapter, which is a very important chapter for them, they understand where their name comes from. Why are they called the children of Israel? Because of this. But think about that also. Isn't the history of the Jewish people a history of those who have striven with God? That's been their history. They have striven with God their whole history. Because after Jacob, then you have his 12 sons, and you study the dysfunction of those sons, they're striving with God. And then as you just go through their history, you know, in, 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 the, in, in the exodus uh, out of Egypt and so on, you know, what they're striving with God, and they don't want to do it. God, they don't believe God. And Moses sends 10 spies out to, you know, to them and say, oh, we can come together. And not eight say, no, we can't. And what do they do? They follow the eight. That's okay. 40 years in the wilderness. And I mean, it's just, you see that they're just striving with God, but yet God's chesed to them is unshakable. But they are the people who have striven with God. And so that name becomes a, an powerful name for them. They understand who they are. They understand the relationship with God. But even today in 2022, Jewish people are still striving with God. Now, that name has enormous meaning. And here, he, ha he, Jacob, has a new covenant name. So what does he do? And there, I'm in verse, uh, the end of verse 29 into verse 30. And there he, the assailant, blessed him, Jacob. So Jacob called the name Peniel, or Penuel. It's, 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 it means the face of God. Peniel means the face of God. Because I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. There's the word that was in verse 11. Jacob's prayer, verse 11, please deliver me. Verse 30, God's answered my prayer. I've seen God, and he's delivered me. Verse 31 is very penetrating verse. The sun rose upon him, Jacob, as he passed Penuel. Blesses that place, going across the river, entering the promised land, limping because of his head. The Bible doesn't tell us this. We don't know this. The question is, does he limp the rest of his life? Reasonably and logically, we would assume he probably does. But even if he doesn't, just think, think of this. He's entering the promised land, limping. Why is he limping? Because he wrestled with God. He's striven with God. So every time he takes a step, that hip hurts. I mean, you know what, you read what happened to him. Hips out of place and all of that. It's out of joint. That would hurt. So every time he takes a step, that hurts. He's reminded, I wrestled with God. and He graciously delivered me. It is a physical reminder of his dependence on God. 
He's a broken man. I think, uh, again, the Bible is silent on this, but I think it's reasonable that he limps the rest of his life. And so there's this constant reminder of dependence on God. And this is this is such an important such an important point. God to get us where He wants us. Sometimes He has to break us of our self sufficiency. Putting it another way, break us to become more dependent on Him, so that we can be all that He wants us to be. And so this was you know that old phrase that we used a lot. This is the defining moment of Jacob's life. Now, he's not perfect the rest of his life, but he's a different man. And so this is just, this is the turning, this is the turning point of Jacob. This is the hinge of his life. God has dealt with him in a major way, forcing him to confirm who he is, changing his name, and hurting him. Hurting him in his hip so that he limps. And every time he limps, he's reminded, I'm dependent on God's grace. I'm the object of God's chesed. He's shown me I belong to him. Now I'm ready to face Esau. This is an encouragement to all of us who would give up on ourselves first, even before God would, knowing that ultimately God is never going to give up on us. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, that's just, that can get people through a very deep valley. That's right. So Israel actually means fighting with God. Striving with God. That's what it means. Striving. Well, driving, driving, fighting. Yep. Exactly. He who strives with God. So, hey, I mean, Jim, so he uh, not only broke Jacob, but exposed him, right? Is that safe to say? Okay. Uh, what do you mean when you say like, uh, he was a cheater and? Oh yes. In other words, yes. I think that's. I think that's the reason. That's really behind the question that God asks him. What is your name? I want you to face who you are, Jacob. I mean, God knows who it is, but He wants him to face. So yeah, in that sense, to use your word, God has forced Jacob to expose himself. This is who I am. I admit it. And then God changes his name. This is, this is uh, it's an overused phrase, but this is the defining moment of Jacob's life. He comes to terms, finally, with who he is. He is out of his own resources. He's about to face Esau. And he's now out of his own resources. He's depending on God's resources. And I just think, I, I tried to picture this in my mind's eye a number of times, Jacob limping into the promised land. I mean, just think about that. That what what an image, and in many ways, if I can extend it to us, all of us are limping. All of us need the cane of God's. I'm trying to flesh out the metaphor. All of us need the cane of God's grace to lean on that every day, because we're all broken men. That's what caused us to come to faith in Christ. Now God's rebuilding our lives. Continue the metaphor there. But it's just a really, it's a really important point because I know in my own personal life, without getting into any of the details, the Lord had to break me quite a bit. 
And that, that has been a very important reminder for me continually of what God did. And I think most of us have been through moments like this, even whatever the na nature and specifics might be, it was a good thing that that happened. And not only, not only would it be applied to Jacob, but everybody who saw him would be reminded of what had happened because they would know the story. And, and so it, it served to, to all the people that, that were involved with Esau with Jacob. Jacob. That's right. They saw him limping. They saw him limping and that. And, and no, this is in the Bible. So everybody would read this. I'm by everyone, I mean all the Jews. Everybody would read this. This is what God had to do to Jacob. And in this, we know this is partially true because of what some of the prophets talk about. This would be the lesson that Israel, excuse me, God would in the be in the process of breaking Israel of their self-sufficiency. It's a nation. You think you're so great. You think because I chose you, you have the inside track. Knock it off. You don't. And so, I mean, it's just that's why this chapter is a very important chapter, not only in Jacob's life, but in the self-identity of the children of Israel. They know who they are. They're the children of Israel. Covenant name of Jacob. Isn't it interesting that the Jews today deny that Jesus our Savior, and others say, no, he is our Savior. Okay. It's, They're still striving with God. Still striving with God. Tradition. That's yeah. right. No, it, it is. All right. Anybody online have any questions? Everybody with me? Because we're done with the chapter now. It's, it's an important chapter. We have about 12 minutes. I want to get into chapter 33, unless you have questions. Yep. A little bit off the subject. How many people have seen God? You know, I mean, Jacob and Jacob, are biblically, yeah, physically in in the, in the Bible recorded. But remember, in what is that Exodus thirty three? Uh, he does not see God face to face. God hides Himself in the cleft of the rock. Elijah down at Mount Horeb has an experience with God, but he does not see God face to face. If this, now if this is to be understood literally, Jacob is the only one who saw the face of God. Abraham did not see the face of God. Face to face. Well, now that's different in the sense that in their, when they were clothed in innocence before the sin of Genesis 3, they're walking with God in the garden. So I, I would imagine and understand that to mean they're walking in intimate fellowship with God in the garden and so on. But remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 9, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So what's the Father like? What's the Father look like? Jesus. You see Jesus manifesting all of the attributes of the Father. Uh, the God who's invisible, that's why that's the final revelation of God is Jesus. But, I mean, your, your question is a very specific and very good question. I, as far as I remember, from, and I, I reviewed this again when I was studying on Monday, Jacob is the only one who declares, I saw God face to face. Now, and, and, and the expositors have, they go crazy with this, because <laughs> what does that mean? Because remember, this is the theophany. 
he's wrestled with him. So a theophany means an appearance of God. So it could have been the second person of the Trinity in a pre-incarnate state. That's whom he was wrestling with. So in that sense, he sees a theophany, he doesn't really see. So, I mean, you could just go round and round and round and round. But he's the only one in the Bible that says he saw God face to face. So can we leave it at that? Because we're dicing some theological. It's hard because it's hard to know because it is a theophany. What does he really see? Because Moses wants to see God, and God says, no, you can't do that. He puts him, you remember, the cleft of the wrong line. Same thing with Elijah down at Mount Horeb. Okay. All right. Any, we've got about 10 minutes. Okay. I'm going to get into chapter 33 then. All right. Uh, well, verse 32, I should maybe read that. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. That is a tradition. That's not in the law. That is not mandated in the Mosaic law, but it was a tradition that developed. So, uh, it, and it, I, it's just telling us that. That would be an explanation for the children of Israel who read this centuries later. Now, verse 30, verse 1 of chapter 33. Now, remember, there were no ch chapter breaks in the original. It's just telling the story. And Jacob lifted his eyes. So all that had happened, he's limping now. And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, this, this statement, he bowed himself seven times, that is ancient Near Eastern protocol. When I say it that way, does, does that make sense? Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, Jacob, what Jacob is doing here is a typical thing in the ancient Near Eastern world. You are approaching someone that is greater and more powerful than you because Jacob's alone got 400. He is doing that. It's, it's deferring to him. You know what I mean by deferring? He's deferring to him. He's bowing seven times. So this is ancient Near Eastern protocol. That's what he's following. Why is it seven times? Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the tradition is seven times. I, I don't know. I doubt that has anything to necessarily with God. It's just the protocol itself. And one other question. It talks about his children, but they are like 20, 30, 40 years old at this time, aren't they? Well, you know, they're born over a period of time, and, 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 and uh, Joseph was the last one at this point, uh, the youngest one. He would be quite young, but the others you're going to have. I don't know if they'd be the oldest. Would be, they are older. I, I'd have to work through the math whether the oldest would be. Reuben is the oldest, so he'd be five. That might be a little 40, might but be a little old. No, they're not. Joseph would be an infant or very close to an infant, but the others are not necessarily. No, that's right. That's right. Jim, I have a question. Uh, yes, whoever said that? This is Woody. Yes, Woody, go ahead. Um, well, the Lord changed his name to Israel. Yes. And yet, further on down, they still refer to him as Jacob. That's right. Those are interchangeable. They will be interchangeable, Woody. Okay. Because there will be times, even in the prophets, well, you'll see uh, the children of Israel referred to as the children of Jacob. 
interchange. I don't don't make don't make much of that at all. Okay. But from here on out, <coughs> excuse me, Jacob and Israel will be interchangeable names for this man. Okay. Okay. That's a good question. That was a good observation. All right. And uh, where am I? Verse four. But that is really a strong word of contrast. Because you still see with what Jacob is doing, he's limping and so on, but he's still tenuous. He's deferring. He's still frightened. He's bowing and all that. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. That was God breaking through. He had a message here. Sorry, I forgot to turn it off. Anyway. Uh, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Now, what a change in Esau's heart, right? The Bible's silent on us. But while God was working and changing the heart of Jacob, God has also been working and changing the heart of Esau. Because the last words Jacob heard his brother say is, I'm going to kill you. He runs. Jacob runs. Now, fearful of Jake, uh, Esau, he's got 400 people with him, et cetera, et cetera, all the things we've just been reading about. Esau, this is an extraordinary contrast. He ran, he embraced, he fell on his neck, he kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? The children, Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. He's still using that language. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down among all Jacob's servants, etc., plus the children, etc. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed. Remember? Rachel only gives birth to one child, Joseph. And so they're kind of behind, and they bow down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? He's referring to what we read earlier when Jacob sends all those 550 animals with his servants, and he said, what does all this mean? And Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Again, we've been reading it through chapter 32. Here he calls him my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So we learn something else. Not only has Esau been in the process of being transformed by God, God has also blessed him, as God promised he would do. Because you remember after Isaac had blessed Jacob and all the stuff that we read about Esau, Esau says, don't you have a blessing for me? And the blessing was, there was going to be some prosperity for him. So he sees that. Um, where am I here? No, this is Jacob now. Jacob responds, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, please accept my present from my hand. For I have seen, for I've seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and that you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. 
That's a very important word. My blessing. What blessing? The blessing of being the firstborn. I am sharing with you, Esau, the blessing of being the firstborn. Esau is literally the firstborn. If you remember God's economy, Jacob is going to be the firstborn. He gets the birthright, all that stuff. So I'm sharing this with you. God's blessed me as the firstborn. I'm sharing. So he is insisting that, Jacob, that Esau takes us. Because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I had enough, and he urged him, and he took it. He, as Esau, took it, the, the flock, the 550 animals that he had sent ahead. He, Jacob, had sent ahead. So I want you to think about this for a minute. We're closing out this section. We're closing out this section, which starts at chapter 32, the breaking of Jacob, the reconciliation. These two warring brothers <laughs> are reconciled, but they both emphasized the grace of God, the favor of God upon their lives. Jacob says this several times. I found favor with the Lord, and I'm sharing this with you. The blessing of God, because I have gotten the birthright, but I'm sharing the blessing with you. Take it. You must take it. And Esau accepts it. Reconciliation has been affected. This is an amazing story. Of all that has happened, two transformed men who were at odds and warring, so to speak, with one another, reconciled. And they give credit to God's grace. The favor of God in their lives. That's kind of powerful, isn't it? I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but this is an example of profound evidence of God's grace in two men's lives. He has transformed both these men. They're different men, and they're reconciled. How does that follow them historically from that time forward, <clears throat> where there's a separation what's going to occur in the next paragraph. Because what's really fascinating is you would almost think, well, they're both going to go into the promised land and live next to each other. No. Esau heads south to Edom, and Jacob goes into the promised land, goes up to Shechem and all that. So even though they're reconciled personally, if, if I can use this 21st century word, as two nations, they're not reconciled. They will be separate. Esau is going to go south, down to Seir, Edom, and that's where his people will develop, and Jacob goes into the promised land. And, you know, of course, he, he's just going to be a father with 11 kids and eventually 12 kids and all that stuff. Now the next question, how are they going to get down to Egypt? Because by the time, you know, you know that's coming up, all the stuff that happened with Joe, Joseph and all of that. But even as this ends, the reconciliation between the two men, but they will develop into two separate nations, and they will remain two separate nations. How does the land in Edom compare with promised? Oh, my. Very different. Edom, uh, if you ever go to Israel, when you're at the, the Dead Sea, that area, you look south, and you see the Red Mountains. Edom means red. And it's a mountainous area. It's rugged. Uh, there isn't a lot of, uh, I mean, it, it's okay for herding of animals, but it's not rich agricultural land at all. There are 
minerals there, there's mining that goes on and so on, but it's very, very different than, the, than the, some of the lush land of the promised land. Galilee and north is the really rich farmland. Judea, Judea is still sort of mountainous, Jerusalem in the mountain, all that. Did that answer your question? They are very different lands. All right, oh my goodness, I've got to quit here. Okay, so I'm really glad. This is what I wanted to get to. Tomorrow, what we'll do is we'll finish this section, but we've covered the main parts. And then we have an absolutely horrible chapter to deal with, chapter 34, which is a horrible chapter. But it is an illustration of the depravity of people and even the depravity in Jacob's family. It's a horrible story. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about why it's there, what it means, and so on. But this is a great section. I'm glad we were able to get through it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jacob. Thank you for your grace and patience and chesed with him. You transformed him. You broke him. When you, if Lord Jesus, the theophany was of you wrestling with him, when you asked Jacob, what is your name? You knew his name. You wanted him to acknowledge who he is, what he's been. Lord, I thank you, too, that in all of our lives, as you dealt with Jacob, you deal with us. You're helping to shave off the sharp ends of our life, helping us to face up to the things we need to face up to and to acknowledge them and allow you to transform us. The Bible tells us you're transforming us into the image of Jesus, your, your son, dear Lord. We are grateful for that process. At times it's hard, it's stretching, but it's a process that is so wonderful because we see the end. You're making us, transforming us into the image of Jesus. We begin to exhibit his fruit, the fruit of his spirit. We are men of God, men of faith who trust you, who believe your promises and hang on to those promises as you continue to use us to represent you in this dark world. Be with the men online, the men here in the room. Give us a good rest of this day and this week. May we represent you well. We pray in your son's name. Amen.